Well, that's not about being wrong. That's about learning a person. I'm doing the same way in the practice of prayer, in the practice of most of my religious faith. I'm just learning myself. I'm figuring out who I am and what works for me so that I can have that connection with God. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not convicts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, if you're new to the show, we're not always going to agree, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to gain understanding and build perspective by sharing our views in a way that builds bridges, but not barriers. Our guest today is Justin McRoberts. Justin is an author, speaker, and songwriter from the San Francisco Bay Area. He has released 11 studio projects, several EPs, and three books, including Prayer, 40 Days of Practice. Justin, welcome to The Dismantle. Hey, man. Good to see you. I'm excited you're on, man. Thanks so much for saying yes. I've been looking forward to it. So, Justin, before we dive into our topic today, how did you get introduced to church, to faith? What's some of your spiritual background? Yeah, well, I came into the door of Young Life. And if you don't know Young Life, it's it's like a it's like youth group stuff for kids who don't go to church or theoretically. Um, and had a Young Life leader walk into my life on my campus when I was twelve, and he's still part of my life. I'm forty five now, and he goes to the church I planted in nineteen ninety eight. Um, so really, just like in relationship with someone who was already following Jesus, I followed his footsteps. I liked the way he lived. I liked the way he talked to people. I wanted to be more like him in a bunch of different ways. And so he told me that his, like the heart of beauty of his life was Jesus. And I thought, okay, well, let's see what happens there. And that's how I got in the door. Church was different uh, just because as a young life person, I mean, like I was not attached to a church, but once I started following Jesus, I had you know, suddenly I had a few people around me who were pretty convinced I needed to go find a a church service. So I played around a little bit with local churches and never fully invested, invested until um, my buddy Sean and I planted a church in 1998 uh, in Concord. That's really cool. And it sounds as though there's been a progression or a journey aspect from 98 to where you are now. Yeah, uh, uh, quite a bit. I mean, do you mean like culturally or personally or both? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we we started a church because we felt like in for for better or for worse, we felt like it wasn't being done in a way that connected with us. The church wasn't being done, which is that phrase by itself is kind of problematic. But church wasn't being done in a way that connected with us or was helpful for us, and so we wanted to start something. I mean, that kind of the classic art thing is like, what do you? What do you want to see in the world? Just make that. And so that's what we did. There's a, definitely an arrogance that came with it in which we felt like we were going to build something that, one, it was going to you know stand the test of all things, and it was going to work for everybody. And neither one of those things is true. So you learn that like you make something that lasts for certain seasons for certain people. And that's been the predominant shift. It's like this is a, this is a cultural good. Church, the, our church culture, our children, like our Sunday service, our discipleship structure, our theology, our expression, our liturgy are particular to who we are, to the people we're trying to love. 
And so it was it was a smaller work than we thought it was, which is fine, more than fine. It was beautiful for what it was. At the time, we felt like we were going to change the world. (laughs) And instead, God was just trying to change a small group of people in Concord. That's really cool, man. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So today on the show, we are discussing prayer and meditation, something that the church might think they know a lot about, but maybe not. Uh, So Justin, how would you personally define prayer? The way we talk about it in the book, and I'm, I'm still pretty comfortable with this, is uh, the, the prayer is it's the ever-present and ongoing conversation between a person and the divine. That it is a, prayer is, in essence, the love of God expressed in conversation between God and those God loves, which is to say that it's really on God. God shows up. Uh, and is present and listens and speaks and that's prayer. What we tend to do with it is the prayer is like the set of words we use or the posture we're in that, or like the time of day, like what we, we tend to kind of do this thing with the mechanics of prayer where like the how to trumps and gets mangled up with the, the why or the essence of things. I think the essence of prayer is that God loves you and is present to your life, every square inch of your life. I think that's what prayer actually is. Now, I think sometimes, and and I'm definitely guilty of this, we think prayer is a lot like math, where there's a problem and there's one solution to said problem. You guys sort of address this without saying it, but why do you think that that mentality is potentially problematic? Um, if that's everything, like that's not untrue, right? Cause that in like, if, if in the, maybe kind of the cheesiest way we're talking about, you know, having a conversation with God, well, there, a, a form of conversation has to do with problem solving. Like problem solving is not necessarily bad. It's just not everything. So it becomes problematic. Like anything else becomes problematic, which is like, if you make that the whole thing, we do this, we do the problem solving with math. We also like a lot of folks will do it with like kind of self-expressive worship. We're like what wor- what worship is to someone is that when the band strikes up and I feel it in my guts and I want to sing really loud as if that, and that's not, that's there's literally nothing in the world wrong with that. Like Hillsong's great and Bethel is fantastic and they're, they really, that's good. But if, if that's the only thing if, or even the predominant thing you consider worship, well, then that becomes problematic. Now, do you think we associate prayer with certain times, certain places, certain emotions? I mean, you mentioned that there's nothing wrong with those things, but it can't be everything. Do you think that with that everything mentality, we then associate prayer with certain things, certain places, certain emotions, things like that? Totally. And should, because there's certain, because like, so as an example, like, so I'm a 45 year old dad, I've got two kids. My wife works part-time for Young Life and part-time for the Center for Bioethics and Culture. I've, I'm, I'm writing another book. Uh, I've got a podcast of my own. I've got another podcast project I've started. I've got neighbors. I've got, like I've got a lot going on in my life. So right now, like prayer happens at certain times in my life and looks a certain way. And that's fine. 
it's more than fine. Like that's necessary and good because that's the shape of my life. When my life changes, then my prayer structure will also probably have to change. When, uh, or if, if something changes in me internally, then my prayer stu- structure will have to change the way I regularly pray. If that makes some sense. Like, yeah, I should associate prayer with certain times, certain practices, certain postures, insofar as that's what's going on with me, my life, the shape of my life, and the pattern of my life right now. Again, the problem becomes if I just like that, that's what prayer, big capital P, prayer, period, is. No, that's just how I'm praying right now. Now, you and Scott Erickson come out with this book, which mm-hmm. we've plugged before, and we're going to plug again because it's fantastic. Yeah, you guys have been rad. Thank you. I can't get enough of it because it's personal, right? It's transformed the way that I look at things, but it's not an instruction manual. It's it's a glimpse into what's worked for you guys, and it's almost a simple street sign saying you could go down this path and it might work for you. Talk to me a little bit about the mechanics and the essence of prayer. You guys are very deliberate in not saying yeah. do this and it will work well for you. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, coming back to so theme from the last couple of questions is the well, actually, just like this in the opening of the first book, it's called Prayer Forty Days of Practice. The second one that comes out in September is called May It Be So. But in Prayer Forty Days of Practice, we I think like I open with this uh, the story about being six, and my mom remembers most of the story, which is how I like how I know it. I only have little glimpses, but <clears throat> um. I didn't grow up going to church, didn't grow up around religi- like much religious practice outside of the fact that my mom had some of the artifacts from her religious past around the house, including this porcelain statue of Jesus. And apparently at some point I took the porcelain statue of Jesus and I went to my my bedroom and I put the statue on the, towards the edge of the bed and then I knelt down on the floor next to my bed. And I don't know where this came from because I was six, but something in my mind like I knew or thought I knew that if you're gonna pray, you kneel. And then I folded my hands in front of me, and then I, I would close my eyes and go lean against the bed to pray. And then every time I would do that, the statue, statue would fall over, and then I would pick the statue back up, then I would kneel again and fold my hands and close my eyes and then lean against the bed and the statue would fall over. And that's like the whole memory that like I never, the way I tag it is like I never got around to the business of actually praying because I couldn't get set up correctly. And that what I would what I had done was I confused the mechanics of prayer with the essence of prayer, that I had to do it in a really specific way in order for it to count as prayer, as opposed to just pay attention that something in me, in my psychology, something in my gut wanted to connect with God, wanted to talk to Jesus. That's it. That's actually prayer. How I went about it, the kneeling, the for some reason, the <laughs> tiny porcelain statue became so important to me that I never actually got around to the thing that was calling to me for a conversation inside. And I think that happens all the time. I shouldn't say all the time. I think that happens way too often with really important stuff overall, prayer specifically, but we do this with justice, that we confuse the mechanics of justice with actual, with like the essence of justice, and then we don't actually go about living justly or working towards justice because we're concerned we're gonna get it wrong. Or in romance, we don't really understand the, or care to understand and learn about the essence of romance. We get it all tangled up with the mechanics of romance, and we end up hurting one another and, and, and you know any other number of you know, really important things in life. They're important, and because they're important, we don't want to, we don't want to do them wrong. 
but getting it wrong is all about mechanics when at the heart of the matter i want to live in a just world i want to love well and i want to talk to god that's the essence of things now why do you think it's so difficult to get to that essence of prayer piggybacking off what you had just said we want to do things well we want to do things right and there's almost this paradox of choice that comes where we can't then step beyond the action and we get hung up on the method why do you think that that happens i can say you know for me um it's taken learning i don't want it it's for me it's a lot of a lot of the fear of failure again i don't want to get it wrong um i don't want to get it wrong because i actually really do want to specifically with prayer i really do want to talk to god and hear from god i actually do want that and because I want that, and I know it's important, I don't want to do that wrong. Then, culturally, as a as a leader, like either as a pastor or just someone who's leading other folks in my life or online, I don't want to get it wrong because I don't want to blow it for other people. So I kind of want to be right about it as I communicate it, which then goes back to the fear of failure. I don't want to blow it. I think that's a lot of why it's hard to get to the essence is because I'm not I'm not as willing to practice. And make it a practice. I make it. A, I make it about a, a matter of right behavior, right or wrong. Whereas, like thinking about prayer as a practice, and maybe this is kind of the, the hinge point. Thinking about prayer as, or considering prayer more of a practice, like the the like the regular doing of it as a practice, puts me more in the kind of space. Like if you're Steph Curry, yeah, I mean you hit what you know between thirty and forty percent of your shots from from behind the arc. Well, that's because for a long, long, long time as a kid, like he couldn't hit the freaking rim from out there, but he had to try over and over and over again. Or if you're a major league ball player, you're a star if you can hit the ball three out of 10 times, which means you swing and miss seven out of 10 times, but you only get that good by actually swinging and missing, right? So like my kid, my my son, uh, my oldest, he's nine, uh, has played baseball for the last five or so years yeah last five years and this year he had uh he had a coach who was overall a really good coach but he would but this coach would talk about hitting uh in a way that i felt like was really unhelpful so the kids get up the bat and he would say something like wait for your pitch and only swing at it if you if it's like your you know the best pitch and one like you're nine you don't know <laughs> you don't know what your pitch is you're nine you have no idea and two, like only swing at it if you think you can hit it. Well, if you're a nine-year-old kid, you're not hitting 300. You're hitting like 100, 150, right? Like one out of 10 times can you hit the ball? The only way you're going to learn as a kid, like what your pitch looks like, unless you're just a remarkable athlete, if you're just your average kid, like is by swinging and missing. That's it. You just take swings, take take shots, like try to hit the ball over and over again. And then eventually – you learn what it feels like for the weight of the bat to transition from your shoulders to your to your wrists into the pop the wrist and swing the hip. And you'll learn what it looks like to swing the ball as it's coming in. Like literally and I think that's what that's what makes it difficult is like I don't want to strike out in prayer. I don't want to swing and miss. But that's literally the only way I'm gonna to learn to do it is I'm gonna learn what doesn't work for me. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be quote unquote wrong. I'm going to quote unquote fail. I think that's what keeps us from from getting to essence. And my mind just had to pause as you said, what works for me? Yes. I was thinking the entire time, yeah, but I don't want to fail. I'm trying to connect with the divine. I don't 
I don't want to keep trying and trying knowing something's not going to work until I find it. But you just said for me. Yeah. Why do you think that there's an individuality aspect to this? Well, because again, if the essence of prayer is the love of God in Christ, if the, if the, if the essence of prayer is the love of God for people, then that's, that's an immovable reality. Like that's done, done. You're loved period. We're done. We're done with that part. So the big part we're done. The next part that has to do with the shape of my own life and how, and how I recognize love and how I receive love that takes practice that takes learning. So I, you know, I, I'm putting air quotes around, you know, failure and getting it wrong. Cause you don't in the same way that like, this is such a cheesy example and I hate that I'm going to use it. Uh, I don't really hate that I'm going to use it, but it's a cheesy example. But like my, you know, my wife and I, when we were dating, uh, and even after, you know, years later as we were married and we date while we're married, like there are things that work for her that like I had to learn that it doesn't mean I was getting it wrong. I was just learning her. Right. Like, like there are certain kinds of movies she doesn't like. Like, if we're going to go out, she doesn't want to spend a bunch of money and go to a nice, like, fancy kind of dinner. Like, other people are, like, really into that, and they feel super loved by that. Well, that's not about being wrong. That's about learning a person. I'm doing the same way in the practice of prayer. In the practice of most of my religious faith, I'm just learning myself. I'm figuring out who I am and what works for me so that I can have that connection with God. The difference there obviously being like, one, again, I'm not getting prayer wrong, I'm just learning myself. Two, whatever works for me, it, it's, it's not gonna work for Joey. It doesn't have to, maybe it does, but not necessarily, because he lives in a different part of the world and has a different set of circumstances, wakes up at a different hour. But the thing that's constant is that you are loved by God, period. Now, I did grow up in church, and, and I've heard things like the Lord's Prayer, First Thessalonians talking about praying constantly, and other passages, and it's in the back of my mind that prayer is something that we're asked to do. I've also heard that prayer doesn't change God, it changes you. It changes your outlook on situations. So I, I feel like there's this understanding and this conversation that the church is having as a whole about prayer but I do think that a lot of Christians feel that it's a burden, something to do, just another task to do, something we don't really understand, but something that we should do. Do you think that it's a caught thing or that's more a taught thing? You know, it's probably a little bit of both. And I, and a couple of things, I want to go back to something you said and then and work forward. I, you know, you know, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. That's that's probably mostly true. I don't know if that's entirely true. There seems to be some precedent in the you know Judeo-Christian scriptures of God being actually moved by the prayers of God's people. So I don't, I don't, I don't know, and I have literally no idea <laughs> like what happens on the other end of that exchange if God changes and moves according to prayer. I have no idea. So I hope at times, hey, please do something about this. Is a that's like I think that's a pretty basic human prayer. Like this over here, this sucks and shouldn't be happening to kids. So God, would you please do something to protect those kids? Um, in a way, like a God who doesn't respond to those kinds of prayers, I, I don't know what to do with. So does God change? I don't know. I hope sometimes God moves. Uh, I know that the predominant thing that happens in prayer is that I change. That's 
I'm maybe more comfortable saying it that way. Uh, and then whether that's whether it's caught or taught that it's a burden, I, uh, probably a little bit of both. We're busy people, um, and if and prayer, even as a practice, is another thing to do. It takes time, uh, it takes energy, and if we don't feel like we're very good at it, or whatever that means, we don't want to do things we're bad at. So yeah, like it feels like a burden. It's also really understandable. And I would counsel, depending on who I was talking to, and depending on where that's rooted in, well then don't for a while. Okay, just don't. Because that probably means for someone, and I don't, again, I don't know this for sure, but let's say we're talking to Stanley, and Stanley, when uh, when Stanley's saying, I don't, you know, I don't want to pray, I don't want to pray because prayer feels like a burden, Stanley means I don't want to go into a room by myself and sit in the chair and open my Bible and find the scripture and read the right scripture and then read a little excerpt in the book about what the scripture means and then journal for 10 minutes and then like make a list of the people I'm supposed to pray for and pray for them. And I don't, I don't want to do that because Stanley probably means a really particular thing. And I would say to Stanley, if that's what's going on, it's like, okay, then don't. Cause I don't think God wants you to feel like this is just some freaking thing you've got to do. Can you imagine like, Hey, I love you. And I want to hang out. Oh gosh. Okay. Whoa. Hey, we don't, let's, let's not, I'm not saying I don't want to hang out, but like, we don't have to go shoot hoops. I was just, that was the thing I was asking. I don't need to play basketball. I just want to hang out with you. Okay. I just want to, it's really hot outside. That's totally fine. What do you want to do? I, I think I, I'd rather just play Mario Kart. Sick. Let's do that. Let's go play Mario Kart. I'm in. I just want to hang out. I want to be connected to you. So sometimes for folks like that moment where it's like, I like prayer is a burden. One, I think you're talking about a really specific thing that is a pain in the ass because it takes up too much time and it makes you feel guilty. Okay, then don't do that. But also at the same time, be open to the fact, the reality, I would say, the fun, the foundational reality that God is just trying to connect with you and it probably doesn't matter exactly how that happens. What will work, go do that. Now, in my experience, I've never heard this from a pulpit around me. Uh, you know, obviously this is coming from your experience and the way that you see the world and the way that you read scripture, but... Why do you think that within the institution of the church, broad stroke church, that's not something that we get from the pulpit? I mean, you make it sound so conversational, so simple. Yeah, I mean, like, I think there are, I think it does come from some pulpits. I think it does happen. So, like, um, and if it doesn't, I don't know. You'd have to ask those pastors why it's not that way. I mean, ultimately, we either are passing on, uh, you know, in in religious leadership, we're either passing on, we're bearing witness to what God has done in, around, and through us, or we're selling something. So either, um, like, you know, Pastor, you know, Pastor Tommy just hasn't had a like an intimate connection with Jesus for a while and doesn't have that to pass on, or Pastor Tommy's trying to sell you something, and it's easier to sell a kind of a broad stroke product that works for everyone than it is to sit down with individuals or small groups of people and work out what's actually happening in individual lives. Do you think that from the selling something standpoint, do you think that it's easier to have a universal benchmark and say, well, prayer works and this is how you do it or you're not doing it correctly? Yeah, that might be it. I think that might be part of it for some folks. Yeah. You know, almost like a business. Yeah, I th I th that makes some sense. Yeah, you can track something's effectiveness because you have a universal standard, but prayer's not like that. 
Um, no, not in general. No, I, like, I, I think, again, like, I understand it from a leadership perspective. It would be great to have more universal metrics by which we can measure growth and health. So I think it does, I don't think it always comes from like a negative place. And so when I say, when I talk about sales, I think the sale thing is, is problematic. But what we try to do is we hope that we're selling something that does work for everyone. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's just snake oil where it's like, I know it's a bunch of crap, but I've got to get something sold because I got to put butts and seats and pay for my family. But I do think a lot of the times we like, what we do want to do from a pastoral leadership standpoint is I want to find something that works and then I want to make that, I, I, I want to commoditize that and make it available to everyone. Sometimes that, depending on the thing, then that's that's fine. And it, again, we've done that with like the way we, we a lot of us have done that with the way we do church. Like, there's no biblical precedent for like, you know, two songs, announcements, another song, you know, video. Like, there's no biblical precedent for that. But that's the what that's what's worked in certain corners, and so we continue to do that, right? Okay, so that's fine. And so universal metric is, you know, are people standing and singing, or people in their chairs at ten fifteen? You know, those are the those are the standards, and we've tried to pass that on because we feel like that's good medicine. Okay, that's fine, but you know, again, just like anything else, like the harder work, I'll say it like I'll say it like this, um, that's an okay thing, insofar as it continues to support the work of the Spirit among people, which looks generally more like Jesus, who spent day to day in and out time with twelve people. Yes, there were moments when he was with thousands. But that wasn't his metric. The metric of uh, like if if there was a metric, this is such an odd way to say it. If there was a metric for success in the ministry life of Jesus, it wasn't whether or not there were thousands of people showing up when like when he did stuff. It was the transformed life of a few people that he spent time with uh, day in and day out. That's it. That's the that's the that's the only real metric for the you know the success or failure of the ministry life of jesus historically so justin just you personally do you think that the smaller model not just with church but maybe just with community as a whole is the smaller model what brings about the transformation i you know i i think i i think change happens in a lot of different ways i think that I, I, people i know i mean i have had transformative experiences in large settings i like i'm not saying it's it's uh it doesn't work at all i've got friends who run large churches i think that all that's fine but even in those large church settings we're generally trying to filter people down into smaller groups to get connected with the smaller group of people like it's got to be if if insofar as it works it's a portal to smaller long term we're changed because we're loved long term we change because we love and that usually happens in relatively intimate spaces, which is what I'm saying. Like insofar as like the large church model thing does work, it works when it facilitates discipleship and discipleship happens on a smaller scale. Long-term, I can walk into a service and be moved, be changed, have my mind changed, but learning to practice that, that's different. So I can think entirely different about, uh, about sex or politics or money but that's a thought in my mind if it's going to become a practice that's probably going to take conversation and accountability and some failure and some grace and those are things that happen in relationship which is generally smaller on scale
which is a great segue into the book. Uh, the first book is called Prayer, 40 Days of Practice. Is that similar with what we were just mentioning, that the practice happens over time with failure and intentionality? Yeah, absolutely. It's been very much like, a, for me, the journey of like embracing the grace that, that undergirds uh, the spiritual life, that it's not about getting it right. You're not going to get prayer wrong. And once I'm freer, at least a little bit freer of the notion that I'm getting it wrong, that I'm free to practice. And as I'm, and as I practice, as I try and try different things and try different times of day, like the freer I am to like one, learn myself in a particular season of life two change things up when that season of life changes. And, but ultimately know that I'm just, I'm received in my effort. I'm received in just showing up. Those are great thoughts, man. Thank you. And, and as we bring our time to a close, what's something that you think the church needs to hear from someone in your position that would help us all move in a more positive direction? It could be on the topics we've been talking about or maybe just something that you're observing. Here's the thing that, here's the thing that, that I have, um, like the major learning curve of my life from a, like a ministry, from an institutional ministry standpoint, from like pastors, church bodies with Sunday services. Um, Christ is forever. Um, nothing else is. So I've held really closely and nostalgically to, to certain models, to certain practices, to certain expressions. And they've been good, they've been helpful, they've been healthy, I've loved them and been loved by them or in them. And then when they start to go away and those things like start to uh, falter or fail, the season changes and attentions are elsewhere, I get sad and depressed because these things that I have loved aren't, like, aren't gonna last forever. But they were never designed to. So your Sunday service, if people aren't showing up anymore, I don't think it's because God stopped showing up. It's because the thing we're doing, my, the thing you're doing th as a thing is not designed to last forever. If your church community doesn't look the same, which mine doesn't, you know, 10 years down the road, it's not because you're a terrible leader. It might be, who knows, you might have to investigate that, but it's also just as likely that like different things are happening and nothing is designed to last forever. Christ is forever. Everything else is really temporary. So love what you're doing, the particulars of what you're doing, the programs, the plans, the children's program, the ministry, the outreach, the music team, the love it well and like be fully invested while you're there. At the same time, hold it loosely because it's going to go away and you, you don't want to mistake. I don't want to mistake the particular expressions of my ministry life for sharing in the work of Christ, which is eternal. Those are great thoughts, man. Thank you. And thanks so much for being on the show. Where can people connect with you online and find out more about the book? Sure. So um, Hearts and Minds Books uh, is a great place to go buy any books. Uh, a guy named Byron Borger, probably the best bookseller in America. Uh, so it's a great place to go order any books, including any of my books, uh, the existing prayer book, the one that comes out called May It Be So. I've got two other books besides that. Um, Amazon's got a lot of stuff, including some books, so you're, you're always free to go there. Um, 
You find me just by searching my name, Justin McRoberts, J-O-S-T-I-N-M-C-R-O-B-E-R-T-S. I'm at Facebook and Instagram a lot. I spend some time on Twitter, this just weirder and more toxic than it used to be. Um, my website is justinmcroberts.com, and uh, I'm available a lot online. Well, we'll make sure we list all that in the show notes. But again, man, thanks for making the time. You're very welcome. Thanks, man. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topics we discussed today. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also send us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Patreon as well if you want to support the work that we're doing. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not conference. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.